This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome journalist and finance professor Kathleen Day to the program. How are you doing, Kathleen? I'm good. How are you? Okay. Kathleen Day spent 30 years as a business journalist with the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and USA Today before joining the Johns Hopkins Carey School of Business as a professor of finance in 2013. Her new book is Broken Bargain, Bankers, Bailouts, and the Struggle to Tame Wall Street. It's uh, just out, published by Yale University Press. The book explores the history of those Wall Street scandals and why the government keeps bailing out bankers and why taxpayers should be mad about it. This is a history podcast, and if I could, Kathleen, I'd, I'd like to go back to the Constitution. We are, we're familiar, I mean, you hear it all the time, that corporations have the rights of personhood, and banks are important institutions in this country. But these words, corporation, bank, do not appear in the Constitution. Why was that? Well, they were such contentious issues. That was something that I discovered in writing a book. Of course, the secret in writing a book is you always learn more than than than, than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Jefferson and Hamilton, a lot of many people know this now because of the hit Broadway play, but they argued over banks. But fundamentally, it was also an argument over incorporations and co- incorporating institutions. And it was a very divisive issue. In, ha- in Jefferson's mind, he and many Americans, early Americans, they mistrusted the idea of corporations because they thought of it as the Bank of England and something that had to do with kings and queens and tyranny. And the fact is that an incorporation is bequeathed by a government. You have to have a government to have an incorporation because what an incorporation does is it says you're going to be a legal entity, a legal person, and therefore your investors are shielded from liability. Now, of course, you're going to put, you, I don't know how much money you would put in a corporation, but you're going to be more willing to put more money in if you know that the extent of your liability is what you have put in. Mm-hmm. You know that if the, if the company collapses, they, um, people can't, creditors can't come after you mm-hmm. and get your house or whatever. So a, a corporation limited liability, and, and Hamilton and Jefferson understood that. But what Jefferson was um, perplexed about is this idea of having a federal corporation to create a central bank because he thought that, again, harked back to tyranny and this whole idea of credit and, and who has access to it. Hamlet, and he, <clears throat> he envisioned an agrarian society where you wouldn't really need a bank. In fact, in many ways, he thought you could just barter a barter system. Hamilton understood that the future of the country was industrial and manufacturing, and he also wanted to consolidate the war debt from the Revolutionary War and pay it. And to do that, you have to have a, a national currency, which we didn't have, to have a national currency, you have to have a central bank. So he was in favor of that. But the bottom line is this was such a contentious issue, the idea of incorporation and banking, that they had to leave both words out of this overarching document of mm-hmm. our republic or else people wouldn't sign it. Hmm. It wouldn't have been ratified. But eventually, as the United States advanced in time, it got corporations and, and banks as well? Well, you could tell the history of the United States through through banking and, and many ways, but through banking and through corporations. And this, these are not just academic or esoteric 
issues. These are things that people talked about and fought about at election time. I mean, this is a big deal for Andrew Jackson to kill the central bank that Hamilton eventually got. We did get these things um, because they were left out of the Constitution. Uh, Hamilton then argued that it, because they weren't explicitly denied, mm-hmm. he, he's the one who advanced the idea of implied powers. Because the Constitution did give the federal government the right to uh, coin money, it, he made this argument about implied powers. So that became the basis for the first central bank of the United States, a federal, federally incorporated bank. And that then led <clears throat> to this idea that you could have um, – so then there were, and then there were state chartered banks, and so eventually, um, and New York played a b- big role in this. Eventually, uh, the idea of incorporation began to become much more elastic. In colonial times, a corporation was bequeathed for a set amount of time, usually twenty years, for a set purpose: at build a canal um, or some other mm-hmm. waterworks or something useful. Uh, and so the first central banks were twenty-year charters. But eventually, as banking became, believe it or not, it sounds like a modern phrase, but in the early 1800s, there became a period in American history where it was called bankomania. <laughs> so, many, <laughs> really? so many people <clears throat> in states everywhere wanted to, to charter a bank uh, and to compete with the, the federal, uh, federally chartered bank of the United States that uh, there were all these charters. And so it became annoying to state legislators to have to constantly keep – um, renewing these corporations every few years. So the bottom line is, over time, bankers and financiers pushed the idea of corporations to become entities that rather than had to be renewed periodically, they became uh, incorporated in perpetuity. And they, didn't, they weren't limited to one thing. They could do whatever they wanted. So the long and short of it is, I go into a little more detail in my book, is that in the United States, because of banks, we have created the modern corporate form that now is used worldwide. And the typical corporation now can live forever, mm-hmm. um, has personhood. I think that's a misinterpretation to give it uh, complete personhood. It's supposed to be a legal person for specific purposes. So um, we, you might not want to get into the contentious issue of uh, campaign finance, but um, I, think, I think it's gone too far. But in any case, that's what happened. Mm. Now, you mentioned uh, President Andrew Jackson. He's in office 1829, 1837. And you said he undid Alexander Hamilton's um, National Bank. Uh, how did, what happened then? Well, they, we didn't have a currency. I mean, what's really interesting, and, and it's fun, although I would not have wanted to have lived through it. I'm, I'm not sure how people did it. It was really a crazy, crazy time in the United States. Um, Andrew Jackson let the central, the second bank of the United States. It had to be renewed after 20 years, and then it got a second 20-year charter. And then he uh, fought with Congress, and it lapsed. And uh, he wanted to go back to hard money, gold standard, and um, he so he killed it. And so what happened is that state chartered banks began to issue currency. So from that period in the early 1800s, mid mid early 1800s until the Civil War, we didn't have a national currency. At one point, there were somewhere between seven to nine thousand different denominations, paper currency, uh, in the states. 
Mm. Depending if if you counted all the different uh, state chartered banks that issued the currency and how many denominations they had, you know, five or ten or twenty dollar bills, it was crazy. To go from one state to another, you had to exchange currency. Hmm. I mean, it's really crazy. I I, I did not know that. It was really, really crazy. And so you get to the Civil War, and there is uh, Abraham Lincoln and his Treasury Secretary, Samuel Chase. They realize they can't fund a war if you don't have a national currency. They they couldn't just use gold and silver because that was scarce, A, because people were hoarding it because they wondered what the outcome of the Civil War would be. And secondly, we're just not rich in gold and silver in this country. So at any rate, it, it, it was really crazy. It was really – and it was bankomania. And, and, and the bank failures, there were so many of them. It's it's mind-boggling how people lived. There were there were dozens of bank failures every year, everywhere. Mm. What did Lincoln do to fund the Civil War then? Well, he and uh, Samuel Chase came up with a very clever idea. And with the ghost of Andrew Jackson looking over their shoulder because he had made such a big deal about central banking. And, and, and the other thing, just to, uh, to go off a little side path here, it's amazing that Americans were so mistrustful of a central bank and yet so demanded paper currency, having a national currency would have been so convenient because you could travel uh, anywhere and it could be used. And we were a very mobile society. And yet people mistrusted this idea of giving the federal government this uh, lever of credit. But So what Lincoln and, and Chase did is they realized they couldn't propose a central bank because the ghost of Andrew Jackson was there. So what they did is they came up with the national bank system. It was a very clever way to create a central bank without calling it a central bank. And so the the National Bank Acts of 1860, I hope I have this right, 1863 and 1864, created the national bank system. That's where we get the first national bank of Cincinnati, the first mm-hmm. national bank. of. Mm-hmm. So they created these federally chartered but local. So they, they married the idea of, of state banking in a sense they 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 sold it to the public and to the congress with the idea that these could be all over and they would be regionally controlled because you could get a federal charter with shareholders uh in ohio or new york or whatever so they'd be locally controlled but they were federal charters and they would all issue the same currency and that is uh, how they were going to fund the war now it didn't turn out to be quite as useful. Well, it, 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 that's how they did it. That's how they did it. So it was a stealth. I call it a stealth central bank. I haven't seen it called that anywhere else. But huh. if you look at the narrative, uh, what I tried to do in this book is instead of looking at each of these separate instances on which there are many wonderful books written, if you look at them all together um, and delete some of the details, you could spend you know six volumes on any one of these episodes uh, in in American history. But if you look at them and eliminate some of the details, so that you can get the narrative really through early America to modern times in 350 pages, you see it, it, it's really an arc. And so we finally got this stealth central bank, but for complicated reasons, it really wasn't great. And so by 1913, Congress said, enough of this already. We're this huge industrial country. Um, we need a central bank. And that's when you have the creation of the Federal Reserve. Mm, but not until 1913. Yep, yep, yep. We've been fighting over this for a long time. And don't forget, Donald Trump, his hero, is Andrew Jackson. I, I, I have right. to be honest, I don't think he really knows who Andrew Jackson is or much about him. I think that was a Steve Bannon 
<laughs> idea that he planted. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Trump even said, wouldn't it be great if we, at one point said, wouldn't it be great if we could go back to a gold standard? I mean, we've tried that. It's it's very unwieldy and crazy. Mm. Now, the, the uh, you, you're up till like 1913 uh, with the uh, creation of, of the Federal Reserve, right? Isn't that what it Yes, the Federal Reserve Board and the Federal Reserve System. And and if you look, it borrowed these very same ideas from the national bank system. That's why we have the 12 regional Federal Reserve Banks. This is, we have codified in our thinking that we, we it's okay, we can have a central bank, we do, the Federal Reserve, but we also have these regional banks, which have a lot of say in what happens and are part of the system. Mm. So, so it, again, that reflects and, and and harkens back to the days when the Constitution was was ratified, when people were mistrustful of just having a central bank. We'll be back with Kathleen Day in, in just a moment. Her book is Broken Bargain, Bankers, Bailouts, and the Struggle to Tame Wall Street. You're listening to The Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cutmore. And we depend on your contributions uh, to keep the Historian's Podcast going. We have a GoFundMe page, gofundme.com forward slash historians 2018. And yes, even in the year 2019, you can still give uh, to that uh, to that website. It's gofundme.com forward slash historians 2018. Or if you, like Andrew Jackson, don't want to deal with newfangled things like uh, the internet, you could write a check out to me, Bob Cutmore, and send it to Bob Cutmore at 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. Kathleen Day joins us. Uh, she is a professor at Johns Hopkins School of Business, professor of uh, finance. For many years, she was a financial uh, journalist or a business uh, journalist with the Washington Post, L.A. Times, and USA Today. We're talking about her book, Broken Bargain, Bankers, Bailouts, The Struggle to Tame Wall Street. We come to the Great Depression of the 1930s. And uh, President uh, Franklin Roosevelt is in office at that time. And he, I believe you're right, he, he saw as, a, as an essential like, difference that banks could be one thing, a uh, place you store your money and you uh, withdraw it when you need it and they pay interest and then they, they invest it and so on and so forth. But this investing Roosevelt was worried about, speculation with other people's money. And the structure that came during his administration was an approach to that. Can you uh, explain it? Well, one of the really interesting things about FDR is he was against deposit insurance. Well, first of all, so the 1920s, we get to the 1920s, and there are no rules. We don't have accounting rules. We don't have any securities laws. There are state securities laws, but there's no federal we don't have any of the major financial uh, oversight institutions that we have today, except for the Fed, and it didn't really know what it was doing in the 1920s, so it did everything wrong. It it took money out of the system uh, when it shouldn't have, and it put money in when it shouldn't have, so it was it, it really didn't understand what it was doing. So we get to the crash, and then we get to the 30s. And so one of the things that that Roosevelt was against is deposit insurance. So federal deposit insurance is one of the big, big, big changes that came out of the 1930s in response to the 1930s Depression and the 1929 crash. Hoover 
and the big ba- Hoover and some smaller banks wanted deposit insurance as a way to stop runs on banks. And FDR said, no, no. Uh, he said, that's going to cause moral hazard. It's going to make depositors indifferent to how well the institution into which they're putting their money is run, so they won't care. Uh, and so there was a big fight that ensued, and, and he was worried that having deposit insurance would also give a steady supply of, of borrowed money. It, 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 it's counterintuitive, but when you deposit money in a bank, they owe you that money. So that's a liability for them. When they loan you money, uh, you owe them that money, so that's an asset. So he was worried that this would create uh, laxity on the part of bank executives, that they would be able to raise more money with this federal guarantee and use it to gamble. Because think about it, 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 just think about yourself. Would you be more willing to to risk money that was your own money or someone mm. else's money? Yeah. Which would, you know, you're, you're going to take less risk <clears throat> if your own money's at stake. Anyway, so it's very interesting that, that in the 30s, in reaction to all of this, we get the Securities and Exchange Commission to regulate uh, publicly traded companies and markets, exchanges, and then you have, um, you, you beef up what the... Uh, existing bank regulators do, and then you have federal deposit insurance, which puts an enormous potential liability on consumers. And the only reason that FDR agreed to it, and hence the broken bargain, the bargain in my book title, there always had been a kind of a bargain, even going back to Mm -hmm. Hamilton, that if you're going to have a central bank, it gets some rights to come in and and we have to monitor it to make sure it doesn't do things that are silly. But there was this very explicit guarantee that, that FDR required of banks. It said, if you're going to get this safety net backed by taxpayers, then the federal government has to come in and make sure that you're not gambling with people's money. And that was the bargain. And so eventually the big banks even went along with it. The big banks were against it, and some little banks were against it because they didn't want more oversight. But smaller banks who faced runs, they didn't have a name like Carnegie or Mellon. And so when, when, the account, when there was even a hint of a problem, they, of course, had lots of runs on their banks. So they, now they had the federal government's name. So once the federal deposit insurance came into play, bank runs stopped. I mean, stopped cold. Mm-hmm. They, that was, they solved it. But the bargain was, in exchange for that safety net, we have to make sure that these banks are not gambling with public money. That was the that was the idea. Mm. And we've continued to have uh, crises. Uh, the financial institutions. Um, let's maybe I don't know. You can fill in other things if you want, but I have in front of me uh, the collapse of the savings and loan industry in the 1980s. Uh, how did that happen? Well, fast forward 50 years, and it's not that there were no trouble. There was no trouble in those 50 years, but it, in terms of uh, bank crises, it was a relative calm. And for a series of reasons, in the 1980s, um, well, the upshot is that deposit insurance was misused in the 1980s by the Reagan and Bush administration, in the very way that uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt thought that it could be. I mean, I don't know if he envisioned that particular abuse, but so what happened in the 80s is. Because of computers and because of the hike in oil prices and inflation, for a variety of reasons, this pact that had been reached in the 1930s where you're going to have investment banks in one corner, commercial banks in another, real estate in another, insurance in another, every, all these different ways that you can engage in financial services, they're all going to have their own little uh, industries and they're going to stick to their knitting and not bother. 
suddenly everyone wanted into everyone else's business. I detail it in the book, but I won't do it here. But every, everyone wanted mm-hmm. into everyone else's business. And the savings and loan industry, because of rampant inflation, was insolvent. They, uh, uh, the government, in response to high inflation, I mean, believe it or not, it got to 21.5% in the 80s. Can you imagine mm-hmm. earning 21.5% on, <laughs> as a prime rate? I mean, now interest rates are so low. But um, they, the government deregulated Congress, deregulated interest rates. So suddenly banks could pay depositors uh, any amount of money. And, of course, depositors demanded really high interest rates. And for savings and loans or, or Basically, they're just specialty banks specializing in mortgages. They had these 30-year fixed-rate mortgages earning 6%, and they suddenly were having to pay double digits on depositors. Suddenly, they were insolvent, and they should have all been closed. It wasn't anyone's fault. It was just market forces had changed. But Reagan and Bush decided they were going to hide it from the American public because to close all the savings and loans that needed to be because they had that federal deposit insurance guarantee, it would have required about a 30 to $40 billion tax hike or contribution from taxpayers, mm-hmm. which is a tax hike. They didn't want to do that, so they hid it. They hid the problem, and they were able to do so because depositors were, well, I don't care. My money's insured. I get my money no matter what happens, so I'm not going to listen to the news about insolvent thrifts. I don't care. And newspaper editors did the same. I hate to say it, but a lot of us were hopping up and down and saying there's going to be this huge taxpayer liability coming down the road, and editors would say, well, are, are depositors going to lose any money? And you'd say no, and they'd say, well, okay, yawn. That's, what story is that? Well, so they hid the problem, and as what, happened, what, what always happens if you don't take care of financial problems, uh, there's a contagion. They infect other parts of the market, and the bottom line is what had been a 30 to $50 billion problem mushroomed into a $500 billion-plus problem, and that's the latest calculation. And so taxpayers had to pay that. That was the largest, most expensive. It was the largest bailout up until that time, and it remains the most expensive. Mm. The most recent crisis, there was a bigger actual bailout and potential bailout of up to, believe it or not, $24 trillion in liabilities potentially for taxpayers. But because most of that money was repaid, even though this bailout was bigger, it was less expensive than the SNL bailout. Mm. So, w- when was the SNL bailout? Uh, that was is immediately when Bush took office. Remember, he won saying, "I don't, I mean, no, I, I, I have great respect for him, and he just died, so I, I don't want to pile on." But history's history. Uh, remember, he won on uh, no new taxes. Read my lips. Mm-hmm. Well, first day in office, he knew he had to say, hey, guess what? I forgot to tell you about this. And the Democrats hadn't brought it up either, because believe me, both Democrats and Republicans were both culpable in causing the crisis. But uh, he said, read my – I forgot to tell you about this. We have this huge bailout in the offing. And at first they said, I think it was $90 billion, and a couple of days it went to 180 I mean, it, it just kept going up and up. Right. So that happened immediately after George Bush took office, and the hope was that voters would forget about it by the next election. Mm. So that was the, uh, the savings and loan bailout. And then we, we come to the Great Recession of 2008 – and that is that the next bailout? The, the sub- That's the next big bet. Well, first of all, don't forget you have long-term capital. Remember that hedge fund that nearly went under? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a big bailout for that. It was government orchestrated but privately funded. Basically, the Fed 
put a gun to all the big bank companies that it regulates and said, you know, you guys really screwed up here. You gave this hedge fund way too much money. They're about to go under, so cough up some more. And so when your regulator tells you to do that, you do it. So they did. So that was federally orchestrated but privately funded. Then you come to this one and you have, uh, again, the next a massive, massive bailout of the financial system. And, and, and it caused the birth of the Tea Party and the Occupy Wall Street movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just saw an interview with Steve Bannon who said but Donald Trump won because of the bailout of the big banks. People mm-hmm. were so mad about it. They didn't understand it. I'm hoping my book will help them understand. It, wasn't, it was unpalatable to do it. It was distasteful. It was repugnant. But if they hadn't done it, things would have been much worse. Mm. The real question is why did anyone let the system get to that point where it needed that? That's the real question. And do you think it's going to happen again? Absolutely. Already in this administration, you have one of the major bank regulators talking about the banks they're supposed to police as their customers. Uh, we're their customers, you and me. <laughs> we're their customers. We're the taxpayers. We are their customers, and they're already forgetting it. They're already uh, – this administration is saying, hey, banks, you can, you can lend money um, to people without assessing whether they can afford to repay it. Uh, that's probably worth a whole other program. But, that, I mean, think about how – would you lend money to someone without any idea of whether they could repay it unless it was your you know, sister-in-law or something? <laughs> you wouldn't do it, right? Yeah. And so they're doing it, and, and it, it, there's a lot of reasons why they would do it. It sounds ridiculous, and wouldn't that put them out of business? But you know what? During the crisis of 2008, the five big investment banks in the United States put themselves out of business. They lent money on such ridiculous terms that they, they were going to go bankrupt if they weren't bailed out. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what they did, and it's the I'll be gone, you'll be gone syndrome. They're publicly traded all they care about is their short-term compensation, so they make these crazy loans, makes their books look good, they get the money, they're gone, taxpayers pick up the tab. Now, kind of in each crisis, they pass new regulations, and I believe from the Great Recession, we got in 2010 the Dodd-Frank law. Does that do any good, or what's happened to that? Well, it's being undone completely, and everyone says, oh, it's so much red tape. You tell me whether you think this is a lot of red tape. You know what it says about mortgages, Dodd-Frank? Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, this seems like Finance 101. It says, hey, banks, before you or mortgage lenders, before you give someone a mortgage, you have to assess whether they can repay it, whether they can afford it. That's what it says. Right. That's not that radical. No. <laughs> That's kind of like common sense. Yeah. And they're undoing it. The, this administration is undoing a lot of it. Mm. Well, um, what is the answer here? I mean, or do you think we'll ever find the political will to do something about this? I think I know this is a big topic, but I think there has to be campaign finance reform because when you're in your middle of the crisis, even bankers who say, hey, get the government off my back, are there hat in hand saying, hey, give me, give me help. And that's another thing is that after, before 1920s and, or the 1930s, bankers and, and Americans didn't expect the government to come in and make them whole. They may have wanted it, but they didn't expect it. Now there's this expectation of doing it. What has really gotten out of whack is this expectation from Wall Street of help us in a crisis, but shut up and sit down when there's not a crisis and get off our back. It's precisely when the sun is shining that you, you, know, you should fix the roof. I'm paraphrasing some, someone, I don't remember who. But the, the real question is how do you get the regulators to do their job and not forget that, that they represent taxpayers, they represent the public, not the banks they're supposed to police, 
And just because we're in good times, you don't say, hey, we don't really need these rules anymore. Maybe we're in good times because those rules were in place. Mm. And you need campaign finance reform. Otherwise, Congress, you know, Congress is going to listen to whomever's paying them money. Yes, it's true. So you're not, are you optimistic, Dick, or pessimistic about the economic future? Well, uh, one thing is I actually, by the way, I'm still a journalist. I still actually am writing occasionally for the Post. Uh, so I'm still a journalist. And so for, for my livelihood, I'll always have a, you know, I'll always, there's always going to be room for journalists covering this. But um, it, we're gonna, it's going to happen again because people have amnesia. They just do. And, and uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, the famed economist and authority on the crash, said we have amnesia every 20 years. Well, in this day and age, I think the amnesia is coming now 10 years. I mean, it's 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 shortened. And uh, I think it'll happen again. I, I have a quote at the beginning of the book of, from Upton Sinclair saying it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. <laughs> Okay. And and that's Congress, folks. Okay. <laughs> so- well, on that note, we will end. Uh, <laughs> Kathleen Day, our uh, guest, a financial journalist and a finance professor, her new book, Broken Bargain, Bankers, Bailouts, and the Struggle to Tame Wall Street. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.